Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. You can hardly turn on your TV these days without bumping into Chris Christie. The former New Jersey governor's on tour with a new book, Republican Rescue, saving the party from conspiracy theorists, truth deniers, and the dangerous policies of Joe Biden. I was eager to ask him if the grand old party was exactly asking to be saved right now and whether he thought he was the guy to do it. So I did. When Christie returned to the Axe Files for a live recording at the University of Chicago's Institute of Politics last week. Now, folks, we're dropping this podcast early in this holiday week, and I want to thank you for listening and wish you and yours all the best. Have a wonderful Thanksgiving. Here's our conversation. Governor, welcome back to the Institute of Politics. Happy to be back, David. And the Axe Files. Yes. Good to, good to uh, be with you again. So here's this book, Republican Rescue, Saving the Party from Truth Deniers, Conspiracy Theorists, and the Dangerous Policies of Joe Biden. You're on a national tour. You can barely turn on the TV without seeing you. <laughs> good, I'm doing my job. I think you're up to something. <laughs> no, not me, David. <laughs> uh, tell me, uh, one thing that interests me is, I don't know, when did you turn this manuscript in? I uh, turned it, went finally in late August. Late August. So then comes November, uh, the election in Virginia, the election in New Jersey, which was closer than anticipated, and all over the country. Pretty good Republican day. Right now, if you went to Vegas, and I'm no shill for the Republican Party, <laughs> but if you went to Vegas, you'd get pretty good uh, odds that the Republicans uh, would... Um, you know, they're going to be successful, uh, according to the odds makers right yep. now, 22, maybe 24. So do you get it? Uh, do people, anybody come up to you and say, hey, thanks, pal, but we don't need rescuing? No, the interesting thing is that even despite all what you just mentioned, um, Republicans that I talk to know that they do. Look, we lost between 2018 and 2020, the House, the Senate and the White House. The only other time that happened in the history of the Republican Party in two years was 1930 to 1932 um, with Herbert Hoover. And then Democrats kept the White House for 28 of the next 36 years. So I think we understand that we've got some challenges. If you look at the voting pattern of what happened in 18 and 20, a lot of suburban educated voters who had voted for us, at least in some significant numbers, abandoned us almost completely. Uh, I'll tell you, just in my state, we went from, from 2016 we had uh, we have twelve members of, of the House. It was seven five Democrat. Um, after the two thousand eighteen election, it was eleven to one, uh, and we lost seats in places that we hadn't lost those seats in decades. So I think we know that, despite the fact that we had a good night in twenty one, 
It's a long way till 22. Uh, Democrats have the White House and both houses of Congress, and they can do a lot to try to improve their lot. And we just kind of have to play reaction to them in some respects. So uh, I think there's still a lot of jump balls to happen. I, I agree with you. The odds are that we retake the House at least. Uh, but, you know, it's not going to solve our presidential problem. And I think we have a presidential problem and we got to get to dealing well, with it. Well, let's, let's not talk in euphemisms. Uh, what happened in 2018 and 2020 that you fear could happen again in 2024? Well, look, if... if and does we, it have red hair? <laughs> I don't know if it's really red. Yeah, um, whatever. But, uh, <laughs> it's not, it's not, I don't know if it's in the natural color index. But. No, I, 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 look, um, Donald Trump won in 2016 in a race that, to me, was um, extraordinary because you had probably the two most unpopular major presidential candidates on Election Day that we've had in my lifetime. And... You know, I remember telling Donald Trump Valentine's Day of 2017, he was in the White House for about three weeks. And I went there for lunch with my That's wife. That's how you spend Valentine's Day? You know, David, when the president invites you, you go. But <laughs> it was only lunch, so I got to take Mary Pat out to dinner All right, that's in Washington. Okay, so it worked out okay. Uh, but I remember telling him that day, look, recognize that you didn't win this election. Hillary Clinton lost it. And that's okay, because you're still sitting here. But the next four years... This is going to be about you four years from now if you run for re-election. And, you know, he never took that in Doesn't or accepted he, it. Does that sound bad to him that it's all going to be about you? No, what sounded bad to him was that he didn't win. Hillary Clinton lost. Oh, I see. And then no, that, I can see that. Yeah. That's it. But I said to look, and you know this because you were an interested observer in this in 2009 when I ran for governor. I've always said to people, I didn't win in 2009. John Corzine lost. And I was the seemingly reasonable guy on the ballot that wasn't John Corzine. Sometimes that happens in politics, and that's okay. I still got sworn in. Um, I got to, you know, be in the governor's mansion. I got to be at the state house. I got to be governor. But I knew that the next four years, when that next election came, it was going to be about me, and I needed to build a record that was something worthy of supporting. And that was my point to Donald Trump. I don't think. He's ever completely understood that, and and he always is looking for the vendetta, for the grievance that he wants to either shine a light on or remedy himself uh, for himself. And I don't think that that's a winning formula for the party, to be looking backwards, um, to be exacting vendettas against people who didn't support you in the party, um, to be continuing to say that the election was stolen in 2020 when it wasn't. And so I think that's the problem for us. And, and the way to remedy it is for the party to start speaking out in that way. And someone needed to do it first. So, you know, Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger are out there early and first on saying that the election wasn't stolen. But I don't think they've gotten to the next stage, which is, all right, now what do we do? And that's what this book is about and what I'm trying to do. And look, I was, you know, as an early supporter of Trump after I dropped out of the race, so it's not like I can be dismissed as a never-Trumper. And I think that's important, too. No, I want to talk about that uh, downstream. Yep. Uh, but b before we leave uh, Cheney uh, and Kinzinger, uh, they have been outspoken on this. They pretty much eat alone in the House Republican yeah. caucus. Uh, they've been shunned. And uh, the, the 
view that you articulate at great uh, length here in this book about what happened in the election has not been embraced by a majority of Republicans. In fact, uh, the numbers have grown in, in terms of uh, Republicans who now believe that there was something wrong uh, with the last election, that perhaps uh, the result was, was not uh, proper. So why is that? And, uh, you know, you're kind of betting that people are going to move away from Trump. He's sitting there in the 80s among Republicans. And his, I had a pollster tell me that uh, any Republican who runs in 2022 who doesn't at least pay passing uh, tribute to the notion that the last election was crooked is not going to win a primary. Look, I, I can tell you that at least in New Jersey and Virginia, that turned out not to be true. I mean, Jack Cittarelli, who is the Republican nominee for governor of New Jersey, was not somebody who uh, expounded on the fact that the, the election didn't was stolen. expound on it, but didn't didn't make a, a big effort to. Uh, well, it's two different things. Like you, 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 I think what you said, the pollster said, was that they have to pay some passing, passing respect to the. And I think that both guys did, including Youngkin. Well, look, I think Youngkin came closer to it than Cittarelli did. But I, I honestly didn't watch the Jersey race right. as closely as I obviously did. See, everybody have. got fooled. I kept telling yeah, people, look right. at the Jersey race. It's actually going to be close. But but I, I, look, I think that there's another set of dynamic that's starting to happen here as well. Des Moines Register poll from a couple of days ago of Iowa Republicans, pretty conservative Republicans. The question was, who's your first loyalty to, the Republican Party or Donald Trump? 62% said the Republican Party, 26% said Donald Trump. I think a year ago that, that number would have been much different. And so what I... Somebody s- should have shown Senator Grassley that poll. Well, you know, look, I think that, that, that I don't disagree with you. And I think that, you know this, a lot of people in Congress work out of fear. Uh, they operate out of fear. They make political judgments out of fear because they want to keep their titles. And so, you know, I think that People, once they're given some cover, um, are going to show some courage. Uh, but they're not going to show courage without cover. And what this book is meant to do is to give people cover. That if I can say it and and live, and so far, yeah. still here. Maybe I should move my chair. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't be too close. <laughs> um, but if I can do it and live, then they can too. And and so I think that's, that's the way we have to look at it. And plus, remember something. He dominated every bit of political oxygen in this country for five years. He hasn't been out of office 10 months yet. So we can't expect that the world's going to change that quickly. It, it almost never does. You talk about the House and their fears. It's been pretty, I mentioned it earlier, relative to Cheney and Kinzinger. We just saw a vote on, on an infrastructure bill. It got 19 Republican votes in the Senate, including the Senate uh, Republican leader McConnell came to the House. Uh, Thirteen Republicans voted for it, uh, and some of them, and, and they were chastised by members of their own caucus. Congressman Gates said they were uh, essentially abetting socialism. Marjorie uh, Taylor Greene couldn't no. sit for that and said, "No, it's communism." He uh, picked out two winners for yeah, sure. Yeah. Quote, but uh, yeah, well. Two of our brighter lights. No, but 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 the uh, but the reality is that the whole caucus was cool to the people who voted for it, and they started getting death threats. Fred Upton from uh, Michigan uh, played a tape that was really shocking, even by 
you know, I, you guys in Jersey have heard some rough language. Every once in a while. Yeah. But uh, maybe even used it. I don't know. But uh, <laughs> You do know. <laughs> <laughs> being polite. But, uh, you know, uh, over, over roads and bridges, you mentioned when we were saying, you were asked the other day if you would have voted for that bill. You said you would have. I would have. I would have voted for the bill um, because I thought there was more good than bad. And that's what compromise is. You, 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 in our government, if you're going to compromise on things, you're not going to get, by definition, you're not getting everything you want. Or everything is not the way you'd like to see it. Um, some things are in that you wouldn't want in. Some things are out that you would want in. But if there's, in your mind, more good than bad, then I think that's something you should support. The one nuance I'll say about that vote was that I think a lot of Republicans were angry about it from a strategic perspective. That if Nancy Pelosi had had the number of votes she needed within the Democratic caucus to pass it, and then those Republicans had voted to add on, I think there would have been a lot less Republican pushback. The idea was she couldn't control her caucus. She lost the number of votes that got her below 218. And the allegation against those folks are, you saved her. You saved her. You gave Biden a win. You yeah. shouldn't have done that strategically. I think it was less about the substance with many of them no, I than it was that, about that, that strategy. Is that, isn't that the critique that a lot of uh, everyday Americans have about Washington is that yeah. it's more about whether the red team is winning or the blue team is winning and, and yeah. not about whether they're winning. And that's why I would have voted yes. But what I'm trying to explain to, to these folks is my perspective is that it was less about roads and bridges for many of them. No. Now, Matt Gates and Marjorie Taylor Greene, they probably didn't even know what it was about, but they, um, but they knew they're against it. Um, but I think for a lot of the Republicans, it was that Nancy Pelosi had not done her job of keeping her caucus together. And in the House in particular, you know, if you've got the majority, you've got the obligation to bring the votes forward to pass something if it's you, if it's something you really want. So I think there was a strategic argument. I'm not excusing death threats or excusing the yeah, people who that are- That would be unwise. I'd, I'd right. advise you against that. Yeah, who are ostracizing other Republicans. Because two of those Republicans of the 13 were from my state. Yes, I know. Jeff Andrew and Chris Smith, who are both two very, you know, good members of Congress in my view. And, and my guess is that this, in the end, won't cost them um, their seats. But uh, I think that it's part of the, the problem with the entire uh, Washington, D.C. scene right now. And it's been that way for a while, is you're right. Everybody's got their jerseys on, and they don't want to ever um, seem to be uh, cavorting with the other side. You know, you uh, wrote in your book about uh, the fact that Trump may have capitalized on, an, on the environment, but he didn't create... Uh, the environment, and you said something was happening already just below the surface of American politics and would continue to build a new kind of extremism, a political expression of, pol uh, 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 of personal frustration, bitter, angry, rooted uh, in legitimate grievance, but often thoroughly unhinged. Um, the 21st century extremism was fueled uh, by cable television, talk, radio, propaganda, blog sites, and a new but growing force called social media where no rules seem to apply and one could uh, uh, one could say anything and it just might go viral. Um, I agree with every word of that. Um, but then later in the book you discuss social media and your main complaint was that the social media companies um, uh, excluded Donald Trump, uh, you know, kicked him off and there were other bad guys in the world, the Ayatollah and others who, who were meritorious of being kicked off too or whatever. I don't want to have that discussion. Right. I just want to, I want to stipulate your point. Uh, but there are, isn't there a larger concern about these social media companies? Yeah. And it relates to 
politics. They profit when people stay online. That's their business model. And it turns out that it's, it's easy to keep people online when they're angry, when they're fearful, when they have uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, their own resentments. And so these algorithms send you to these corners. Mm-hmm. That's how we get to QAnon and yep. so on. Um, but so there's profit in division. There's oh, profit yeah. in anger. Isn't that true in politics as well? It has Isn't be- that what Trump proved? It has become that. There's no doubt. Um, and, and, and let me say, too, about the social media companies that my, my concern about them is even larger because... You know, we talk about Section 230 in there that, that shields them from liability. Yes, yeah, that's a provision in the uh, in the communications uh, law that that treats them not as publishers, so therefore not liable. But we know that they they curate materials. That's my point. People. Is that is that you know I think the even larger problem, and it's I think agreeing with your point that they are now no longer they analogize themselves to bulletin boards. They said like if you put a bulletin board up. I, the bulletin board owner shouldn't be sued for what yeah. someone tacks on the bulletin board. But they decide what's on the bulletin board. That's right. And in the beginning, the impression was that they did not. And what we now know about Facebook and Twitter and a number of the other social media companies is that they do. And that they do it in large measure to drive profit. And so, you know, my concern about social media is, yeah, I, I used the example of Trump being kicked off and the Ayatollah Khomeini is still on. I thought, you know, I don't know. He's a pretty bad guy, too. Uh, maybe he should be allowed to be... There are plenty sp- more. I can think of a lot of people. A lot of them that are spewing hate on there and, and, and divisive stuff that maybe don't belong on there. But the, to me, the bigger problem is that they are acting as editors of where we go and what we see, yet they're not going to be held responsible for no, their I judgments. No, I get that point. I just think the bigger problem is their business model relies on driving people. How does QAnon, which you rightly report, is a completely crackpot cult. Total. Uh, how, and I'm, I apologize to any QAnon supporters in the, <laughs> in the audience, but how did, how did it grow from, you know, this germ of craziness into a movement where now there are a couple of members of Congress who are basically QAnon People yeah. and and a resistance on the part of of people, frankly, in in your party, uh, in a, in a lot of cases, to take them on. Yeah, I mean, look, I and that's why I don't mince words about Marjorie Taylor Greene, who's probably the most prominent QAnon person in, in the House. Um, I don't mince any words about what I think about her and how destructive I think she is to our our, our political environment right now, um, and the fact that she gets more and more attention is not good for politics in this country. Um, and, I, and, I, and I think that other people in my party, some have spoken out against individual things that she has said, but I think there's a bigger problem. And the bigger problem is, it's this tension, right? I don't think somebody like her belongs in the House. But then again, I don't get to decide that. The people of her district get to decide that. And so we have this conflict of, do we have the right as leaders in the House of Representatives to exclude someone who the voters have put there knowingly put there because she didn't run like hiding it no she ran waving the flag yes the QAnon flag and they voted for her anyway so i think there's a lot of interesting things going on right now in our politics that create all different kinds of conflicts david and and to me it seems pretty simple that she doesn't belong there but the remedy is much harder 
We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now, back to the show. But here's, here's where I was going, and let me preface this by saying, we're friends. I Uh-oh. Mean, so, yeah. We are. I only, I only said that to ruin your political career. Thank you. for You've uh, done it before. You can do it again, David. Uh, but, uh, yeah, as a matter of fact, we should point that out. I mean, I said earlier when we were speaking uh, before we came out, you were the canary in the coal mine because you, in the midst of uh, the superstorm in uh, Sandy in 2012, in the final week of the election, struck New Jersey. New Jersey was devastated. President Obama came up uh, to New Jersey, and you greeted him, uh, and you didn't, you know, you didn't punch him in the face. You didn't. I didn't wear my Romney sweatshirt. No, you didn't do any of that, and you did what I think was appropriate, which is the governor of the state. You toured the state with, you you know, with the president, and and you, I know from the, you know, my own experience with him at that time that you guys weren't close contact about what New Jersey needed yep. and so on. This was considered an act of uh, betrayal mm-hmm. by a lot of Republicans. And you heard about it when you ran for president everywhere you went. Yeah, and I heard about it before. I mean, look, uh, Barack Obama came on that Wednesday. Superstorm Sandy happened on a Monday, eight days before the general election of 2012. Barack Obama came on Wednesday. By Friday, I was getting calls from Republican donors from all over the country saying to me, you need to go out there and remind people that you're for Romney. I'm like, well, what do they need to be reminded for? I, I, I was the yeah. keynote speaker at his convention. I raised more money from him for him than any other person whose last name wasn't Romney raised for him. Uh, and so why do I need to remind them? And finally, one guy said, if you don't do it, I will never support you again. And I had just come from a flooded basement apartment in Sayreville, New Jersey, where a person had died. And I said to this guy, all right, we can continue this discussion later, because right now I'm still pulling dead bodies out of buildings. And as long as I'm doing that, I don't really give a damn about what your concerns are about how clear I've been about supporting Mitt Romney. That, that's a conversation stopper. Right? Yeah, that's it. I, well, and to make sure it was stopped, I hung up after that. <laughs> but I, I, And I don't know if David knows this story, but I... I about an interaction between the president, President Obama that day and I, but we were touring um, in, a, in a town called Brigantine, which is outside of, of uh, Atlantic City, and we held a press availability there, and I said some nice things about President Obama, all of which were deserved. I, I said, he's been there from the beginning. Every time I've called, he's taken my call, and everything we've asked for, he's given us. And I want to thank the president on behalf of the people of New Jersey for being so responsive. Those were all absolutely true statements, and he deserved to have them said about him because he performed his job. But we then got into Marine One together to fly up the coast so he could view the coast. And it was a little bit awkward. I'd said these very nice things about him. I had been Romney's keynote speaker, and God knows the awful things I'd said about Barack Obama during the campaign, but there were plenty. I actually have a list. (laughs) (laughs) I remember a few of them. And so we're sitting, and as Dave will tell you, in Marine One, if you're sitting across from the president, it's very narrow. Yeah. You're almost knee to knee with yeah. each other. So we're sitting across. We sit down and we're waiting for the helicopter to take off. And the president looks at me and says, um, 
Chris, look, I just want to say that you said some very nice things about me out there. You didn't have to do that. And, and I appreciate it. I appreciate you acknowledging my work and the work of our folks over the last few days. It's very nice of you. And I said, Mr. President, and I said what you deserved. And, and I'm happy to say it. And then there's this awkward silence between us because where do you go from there? We're political adversaries. You know, like here we are. And, and I looked at him, I go, you know I'm not voting for you, right? And, uh, and he said, I didn't have any hope of that. And I said, good, all right. I just wanted to be, because there was this moment where we had been so nice with each other. And I'm like, I hope I'm not giving him the, impo-. you know, like I don't want to be a tease. Uh, I, you know, I, I, I'm not voting for you. And he said, no, nah, he had no hope of that. So it was, it was we were comfortable about New Jersey. Yeah, they were not worried about my vote. He won by 17 um, on, on election night in New Jersey. But I think the important point about this is that I never thought about doing it any other way. You're the governor of your state. You have an obligation to the people who voted for you and the people who didn't vote for you to do your job. And if I had done anything other than welcome to the president, greeted him, toured with him, showed him where I thought the problems were, and complimented him about the things that he had done well, then I would have been putting politics ahead of my obligations to people in my state who were suffering. And you can't ever do that. And so I've had, I can't tell you how many people ask me in the nine years since then, um, if you had to do all over again, would you do it differently? And my answer every time is the same, I wouldn't. I wouldn't have done one thing differently because it was the right thing to do. And I know what it cost me. Um, and in the end, I heard much more about that than I heard about almost anything else when I was running for president. I, I, I'm, and I, I'm not taking anything away from it because it, it was a, I thought it was a, a, a really important thing to do uh, at, the, at that time, not for Barack Obama, but for the country to see two people of different parties working together yep. in, in a disaster. It didn't hurt you in Jersey. Oh, it, it was fabulous for me in New Jersey. Yeah. Um, you know, in New Jersey, Barack Obama won by 17 points, and I was being nice to him. Um, so, yeah. I mean, but that it's interesting because Jersey, you were in a you're in a state that leans Democratic. You were the Republican governor in a state that leans uh, Democratic. Part of the problem we have in this country is that so many people come from states that are so uh, homogenous uh, you couldn't elect politically somebody that, party, yeah. that there is no, you know, and we that's almost, you know, I would say, you know, 90 percent of the congressional districts. Yep. You, you never have to have a general election. One of the reasons Barack Obama was uh, successful as a politician nationally was that he campaigned in downstate Illinois. It helped him when he went to Iowa, very familiar to him. He had been in the state legislature here and had worked with Republicans from all over. And he had a feel for, you know, there was, (laughs) he he, he was well-trained in that. There isn't, there aren't that many places where that happens anymore. No, I agree with you, no no doubt. So I want to, but but I just want to push you a little bit on one thing, uh, because this book is divided. End of the kumbaya moment, everybody. Yeah. Now, now, uh, buddy, we uh, this book is divided into three parts. The first chronicles uh, your relationship with uh, Trump, particularly through the Trump years. We'll get to an aspect of that. Um, the second is debunking crazy conspiracy theories, which notably you, you point out Trump. Trump was a purveyor of many of them. Uh, the third, though, is this kind of certification for I mean, I think you would say it's a blue print for Republicans. But it's also a certification that after, you know, dumping all over Trump, you actually are a Republican. And some of the language in it, I I just like, let me read this from the policing section. 
the crime section. Not only do we have everyday crime rising, but the summer in the summer of 2020, the summer of 2020 gave us rioting and looting of, uh, of the Black Lives Matter protests. Democrats did not just support the peaceful protesters, they openly supported rioters burning our cities and looters destroying small businesses. They urged defunding of police and worse, demoralized police officers all across the country. Crime is out of control under Democratic influence and Joe Biden's leadership. Um, you disagree with that? Well, yes, because I, I don't, I don't, I never heard Joe Biden once say that he believed in defunding police. In fact, he emphatically took the other position, and so did almost every major Democratic leader I know. I can't think of one uh, who did not. I don't, uh, I never heard Joe Biden say that he supported looting and uh, rioting, and I don't really remember one major Democratic leader. I mean, was there a voice out there that may have said that? Yeah, I mean, but I'm not assigning Matt Gates to you. You, you almost tried to before. No, no, I didn't. <laughs> no, I was asking you about what was going on yeah. there. I mean, so, um, you know, and the way I read this, and by the way, homicides were up in 2020 uh, by uh, 30% in this country. Um, and, uh, you know, would, should we say this was the function of Republican influence and President Trump's leadership? I mean, I, I just, you went on in this chapter, by the way, to talk about what you did, which is incredibly laudable in Camden, New Jersey, which is a model in certain ways for how to approach policing. You disbanded the police department and you rebuilt it ar around a different model, which is a lot of what police reformers are mm -hmm. talking about now. So I'm, I'm not asking you, uh, well, here's what I'm asking you. Okay. Don't, aren't you as someone who aspires to be potentially a candidate for president, aren't you under some pressure as well to just throw enough red meat to the base that they can, you know, they can feel like, well, he's kind of one of us. Because this is red meat language, and it's not really, you know, it's, it doesn't really hold up. Well, a couple of things. You're always under pressure, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, to throw red meat to your base. So I am I under that pressure? Of course I am. And any political candidate who says they're not, whether they're a Republican or a Democrat, is just not telling the truth. Second, I do believe what I said in there, um, because... I heard many Democrats rationalize the violence. And to me, a rationalization of that violence is an, in, is an implicit support of it. And like, you need to understand how frustrated and angry these people there are. There may have been people saying that, but I didn't hear, I didn't hear Biden say it. I didn't well, hear what I said about Biden is this is, look, when you're the president um, or the candidate at that time, the nominee of the party, um, I think he could have been much stronger in speaking out against what was going on, and he chose not to. And that's the other way you throw red meat. It's not only by what you say, it's by what you refuse to say. Yeah. I, I mean, and I know we disagree we on this, could, but I, 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 the feeling that I had in watching Portland and watching Seattle and watching Wisconsin, um, New York City, um, with, with Bill de Blasio there, basically allowing the city to become a, a war zone. And, and instead blaming the police. Well, of course, when you blame the police for that, and believe me, there have been police abuses that, that need to be done, and, and that's why we did some of the changes we did that I talked about in Camden. But when you blame the police, you demoralize the police, and the police go, good, okay, you don't want us to do that? We'll take four steps back. And there's a result from that. 
you empower, to me, people who want to do bad acts in your city, in your state. So and I know we have fundamental disagreement on this one, but to me, I think that silence is acquiescence yeah, I, in some of this. If, and if Biden were silent, I'd, I'd agree. I mean, he was very clear uh, about what he felt, and he was very clear about what he felt about uh, about police as well. I mean, I had sort of the same feeling about the section on uh, education. You, you know, you you had a well-known running battle with teachers' unions in your state, um, and you know that that's one thing. But do you really think that uh, critical race theory is being taught throughout schools here? I mean, I you know we're critical race theory is now being used as an umbrella phrase for. Well, you used it. That's why I raised it. And, and I'm explaining that. Okay. It's now being used as an umbrella phrase for um, certain types of liberal agenda items that are being, in my view, pushed in the schools. I don't believe that any child should be taught that one of the determining factors of how you treat someone sitting next to you is their race. And, and, and that's clearly being taught. Um, in our schools now. You can call that whatever you want. I don't know if that's critical race theory. I don't know what it is, but to me it's just wrong. Yeah. And I mean know, I guess I could I guess I I guess I would argue that what we really want to teach children is not to treat people differently because of their race. Isn't that really kind of the crux of this that for a long time people were being treated differently No question. Of their race? And I think and, and I don't think by and I thought Condoleezza Rice put this very well. She was asked this, I think, on The View, for God's yeah. sake. Um, so, actually, something hey, smart came out numbers. of The View. you got to get on there, man. I've already been on there. Okay. Are you kidding? I was there on Monday. <laughs> I don't mess around. They sell books. Um, <laughs> but uh, but it, it, she said there, and it, it, to understand Condoleezza Rice, just briefly, is the, that she is the a daughter of Alabama, raised in a segregated school system. Um, was friend, and, friends with the kids who got killed in the church In the church bombings. Um, and... You know, she said, look, I don't think that we improve anything in our country by making white children today feel guilty about the sins of ancestors they had nothing to do with and never knew. And I don't think that empowers black children, and I don't think it empowers white children, and we should be for empowering all of them. And, and, I, and, and yes, I have had a long-running feud with the teachers' union, yeah. and, and, I, and, and I think that what's happened in Virginia... And what's happening in the country right now is that parents, for the first time because of the pandemic, are becoming really clued into what their children are being taught in the classroom. They didn't know before. Most parents are, most families these days are two family income households or, or three jobs or four jobs to support their families. They don't know specifically what their children are being taught every day. Even involved parents don't necessarily know. Then all of a sudden the pandemic happened and they were sitting there and hearing it. And I think for a lot of parents in this country, it was disturbing. Um, I'll give you one quick example, a personal one. You wrote about it. Uh, right. Niece. My yeah. niece. And my, my niece. I just want to show you I read the book. See? Not a boy, David. <laughs> I can see he has notes in the book, too. It's really impressive. Um, I he can't really, believe he said this. Yeah, he really is a professor. Is he crazy? <laughs> um, but she's a fifth grader. Her class was given an assignment um, to write a, a, an essay, The American Dream, Myth or Reality. And... They said also, though, for the, for the assignment, you must write your, your essay based upon the written materials we give you. And then they gave them written materials that only supported myth. So you'll be shocked to know that my niece went home and wrote 
uh, an American Dream is a Reality uh, essay and turned it in anyway. And she got a C. And so my brother and my sister-in-law were concerned about it. She's this, this niece is a very good student and very, very meticulous about her work, unlike some of her brothers. And um, so they went in to ask. And they said, well, she didn't write it based on the assignment. So well, you didn't give her anything that supported reality. And well, that was the assignment. Is that, what is that? To me, Look, that's first pushing of all, I an don't agenda. Know, I mean, I, you know, I, I can't even speak to that. I mean, you know, I can make an argument about economic mobility in this country because I think we ought to try and do better. It's mm -hmm. harder for, uh, you know, a, a person in the lowest uh, quadrant has like a 7% chance to move up to the top. That's not what we want in this country. And we do less well than many other industrialized countries in that regard. But I don't mean, you know, fifth grade. And I mean, I don't know what was going on there. Here's what I would say. Um, you know, Terry McAuliffe said, uh, I think, I don't know what he meant, but what, the way it came out was that, you know, no parents shouldn't be involved in the education of their kids. That's nonsense. Of course parents should be involved in the education of their kids. You know who shouldn't be involved in the education of their kids? Politicians. I don't disagree with that. Politicians, you have a you have a a, a legislator, powerful legislator down in Texas with a list of eight hundred and twenty books that he wants to proscribe. Well, to me, that's ridiculous, right? So I'm not a. I got asked this on an earlier show I was doing today. I'm not a book banner. Like my view is, you learn something from every book you read, even really bad ones. <clears throat> you learn something, and we should be exposing children in this country and young people in this country to more of that, not less. Um, and, but what, you, what the teacher needs to be, in my view, or the professor in college, is the tour guide for that, to make, for younger children, make them understand when they read um, The Adventures of Tom Sawyer, that there's language in The Adventures of Tom Sawyer that we would never think to use today, but that back then was appropriate and accepted. That's where we need to guide people. Should you ban the adventures? No, absolutely not. And nor, on the other hand, should you ban Beloved. Right? So I think that stuff, I, I'm 100% with you on that. I'm not a book banner. I want people to read as much as they can. And I want them to be, develop a critical mind so they can decide whether they think something's objectionable or not. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now, back to the show. Let me, uh, let me ask you, you know, one of the most moving parts of this book, and I know one of your, uh, your daughters, Sarah, is here. Oh, there you are. Uh, I'm sorry. I, okay. <laughs> I, I realized we just had a talk about this, and here I went and outed her. <laughs> I'm, I'm, so, I'm sorry. But, uh, but I think this relates to you. Um, you, you wrote very movingly about your own battle with COVID. And, uh, you know, we know last fall you spent seven days in the intensive care unit. I'm pretty sure that as you were lying there, you weren't thinking, damn, I'm not going to get another chance to run for president. No. <laughs> uh, but tell me what you were thinking and talk about that. And, you know, you, you talk about one piece of it when you thought you were going to be intubated. Uh, so yeah. talk about well, that. Well, look, I think... Um, you go into the intensive care unit for COVID, and it is incredibly frightening because you are isolated. 
Um, the nurses don't even come in but for twice a day. Your IVs are outside the room. They can change them outside the room so they don't have to come in and be exposed to you. When you have to sign a consent form, you sign it and they don't take it back because you touched it. You hold it up to the window and they take a picture of it. Um, and you can't get visitors. You are so sick that you don't really feel like reading or even watching television. Um, so you're very much in your own mind. And as the first couple of days were going and they weren't going well, I was getting worse, not better. Um, I had a conversation with my wife on the phone um, with her checking in on me. And I said, look, it, conversation I have to have with you, if they are going to intubate me, you need to tell them that they need to give me a little notice because I want to talk to each of the kids because I may not come out of it. And there's things that I want to say to them uh, if it doesn't work out. And that's an awfully difficult conversation to have and to think about. And you think about it by yourself. And what I was thinking about in those times, David, was the things that I wouldn't get to do for them. Mm -hmm. As a father, I think, and I know you relate to this, that you feel like a guider and a protector of your children. And that the hard-earned lessons you've gotten, you want to make it a little easier for them. And the way you can do that is when you see a situation coming their way, you say, oh, I've been there and I screwed that up, so don't do it. Here's the way you should try to do this. And I was thinking to myself laying there, I'm not, I may not get the chance to do that. That's what I was thinking about. I was thinking about, you know, my daughters. Who's going to walk them down the aisle if I'm not there? You know, who's going to guide my sons on what it means to be a man and how to treat their wives and how to be a father? Those are the things you're thinking about when you're laying there. And um, that's an intense emotional time. And actually, one of the only people I spoke to about that beside Mary Pat, and it was just coincidentally someone I think you know, Greg Brown, who is the CEO of Motorola Solutions here in Chicago and a good friend of mine, a Jersey guy, um, who I've known for a long time. And he called me to check in on me one night when I was in the midst of one of these. Despair. Yeah, I was. And I started crying to Greg. And, you know, it was, that's when you need a friend. And he was like, are you kidding me? There is no chance you're going to give in to this. There is no chance. I know you too well. You're too strong. You're too tough. You're going to overcome this. Now, he had no idea whether I was or I wasn't. But that's exactly what I needed to hear at that moment. Yeah. And, um, you know, so I, I, I think when people look back years from now on this phase of our country's history, um, I think the, the psychological impact that all of this has had on so many people is going to be something that we won't really truly understand. No, we don't. Yeah. And when you see today, I saw on the front page of the Wall Street Journal today in an issue that I really care a lot about, um, opioid addiction, that we now had 100,000 deaths in a year <laughs> from April to April in this country. And there's no question in my mind that number is going to go higher before it goes lower, and that the pandemic had a lot to do with that. Less mental health care, less uh, drug treatment, uh, and greater anxiety and isolation and loneliness. Mm -hmm. And I think we have a lot, I think a lot of people think wrongly, I believe, that when we get past wearing all these masks and everybody is back to some sense of normalcy on COVID, that we'll be back to normal. 
I think that's just when the first layer, the, the fog of war goes away and we see the real casualties that are left. Right now, we've just seen the most acute casualties, the people who have died from COVID and their families. But we're going to see the, the, the background. And so, you know, we have a lot to work on on that. And for me, when I was laying there, I wasn't thinking about that stuff. I was thinking about the most basic part um, of my obligation as a father. Did it, what change, I did it change you at all? I mean, did you, did you think differently when you came out of there? Yeah, I definitely did. In, in the sense that um, I was always close and connected to my children, but I'm even more close and more connected to them now. I call them more. I'll just FaceTime them out of nowhere, Sarah will know. We have a witness here. Is this, <laughs> yeah. She's nodding yes. <laughs> so. um, you know, because what COVID did more than anything else to us as a society, and it did it to us as families, was it was a lack of connection. Yeah. And then, you know, and I also had two people in, in our relatively immediate family, first cousin, who died from COVID, she and her husband. Um, she got it, she gave it to him. No underlying medical conditions. They were 60 and 61 years old. He was a longshoreman, still actively working on loading ships, very physical job, and he was in great shape. She died from, from uh, organ failure. He died um, from a stroke. The blood clot went to his brain. Um, it's random, and it was a very emotional thing for us. So the way I think it's changed me is that I think every day about making sure that I say what I want to say to my kids when I think of it and don't put it off. That is incredibly annoying to them Yeah, um, at moments, no question. She's nodding again. <laughs> incredibly <laughs> annoying to them at certain moments, I think they're saying to themselves. Um, in fact, I, I, I texted the four of them together the other night because I was with some people at dinner and they asked me, you know, what do you do that annoys your children? And I told them, I, 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 I'm FaceTiming them too much lately. I think that annoys them. And I said, what phrase do I use? that you guys make fun of me behind my back? The answer was, not behind your back, we make fun of you to your face um, about it. And they all came with a, with a phrase or two that I used that had become that. So I'd much rather have those connections now. And, I'm, and you know, in our business, you can become very detached yes. from your family because yeah. you're so Yeah, you, you convince yourself and, that what you're doing is so important that you just have to... Yeah, I yeah. Know, and, I, and I don't... If, if I ever were to run for president again, um, I, I really believe that after going through what I went through, that I won't be as detached as I was when I ran the first time. Yeah. Okay. You heard it here, Sarah. Um, <laughs> so uh, on the subject, I mean, I'm not, I don't want to pick over what's been picked over in a million media interviews about the fact, I mean, it seems likely that you got this from the president. You don't know. Mm -hmm. He called and may want to make sure that you didn't, uh, blame, blame him. him for it. <laughs> um, but I want to ask you about his larger role in uh, in in the the whole saga of COVID, um, and let's let's stipulate that the um, you know the vaccines and the uh, Operation Warp Speed was a uh, a singular achievement and and obviously saved a lot of lives. But you're very explicit in this book. You wanted to lead this effort to fight uh, COVID, and ultimately he chose the vice president. Yeah instead and you are pretty explicit about your disappointments and how he handled it um you said too little too late too much denial not enough fact facing too sunny too disconnected from the frightening realities of people's everyday lives trump's refusal to wear 
A face mask made him look stubborn. None of the actions, none of his actions gave the Americans, the Americans the confidence they craved in a crisis that their president was doing everything he could. Um, do you think that had things have been done differently, if he had taken it more seriously sooner, if he had communicated a consistent message on wearing a mask, uh, if he had done uh, a number of things that you recommended to him, uh, would a lot of lives have been saved? I mean, hard for me to tell, but I suspect so. Um, you know, I, I'm not a doctor, and I try not to pretend that I am, but it just seems to be logical to me that it would have. And and I think, you know, um, his wife was very plugged into this, and I write about that in the book, too, that she's the one who called me and said to me, you know, you, in March of 2020, said, you need to come down here and talk to him because you get this stuff, and he knows you get it, and I want you to talk to him about it. And I said, well, I just don't invite myself down there. She goes, don't worry, you'll get an invitation. And then about two hours later, he called and said, I want you to come down right now. Um, and we had like an hour and 45-minute conversation in the Oval Office about this, predominantly just the two of us. The vice president wandered in once and wandered out. We had a fundamental disagreement about how to deal with this stuff. He wanted to be perpetually optimistic and say it's going to go away, it's going to be okay, and my approach to him was that no one believes that. And so when you say that, you're not encouraging other people to be optimistic. You're making people think that you're out of touch. Mm -hmm. And the worst thing that a leader can be in a crisis is out of touch. What about those five weeks when he took the podium in those briefings and well, offered uh, some unusual I, remedies? I have to admit that I am partly responsible for that. Um, but it didn't play the way I, I suggested it would. You're not a Lysol guy. Uh, no, no. What I said to him was, you should go out and speak at the beginning of those press conferences, give a brief five to ten minute update on the latest that's going on, take one or two questions, and then leave and hand it off to the vice president. I think the people want to see the leader. And I think we saw this with Andrew Cuomo in New York. He was doing it every day and in a very kind of factual, methodical way. And I think Andrew did a very good job on that. And, and people in New York, as a result, felt much more confident that the government was in charge and that it was going to get better, but that they weren't underselling it. Um, of course, the, the president took half of my advice. He went out and led the, the, the press conferences, but went on for an hour. Yeah, took, they, were, they were sort of... They, they were rambling, you know, yeah. diatribes on things, put people on the spot, took 15 or 18 questions. And, you know, to me... It, it, it was counter to what I was advising. What I was advising was be a presence as the president. Let them hear you, answer a couple of questions, then hand it off to the experts and let them talk. He, um, he only took like a third of that advice. So you, in your book, you, as I mentioned earlier, you took on some of these conspiracy theories. You took on birtherism. Uh, you took on QAnon. Uh, you took on the election uh, fraud. Uh, disaster. And on that, um, you, you said it wasn't what the president said on January 6th that made him culpable. It was everything he said leading up to the election. Yes. Um, so I, I guess my question to you is, um, you talked about how he handled the, the crisis. That, that will is a, a seminal crisis in American history now, 770,000 uh, people dead. 
you've talked about his role in being a purveyor of conspiracy theories. You said we need to renounce the conspiracy theorists, theorists and truth deniers, the ones who know better and the ones who are just plain nuts. Um, and yet you enthusiastically fought for him in the election. And I'm sure you'll say, well, we got conservative judges, we got tax cuts and so on. Where's the red line for you? I mean, the you, red, you, the red you, line call, you the, called the January 6th the, the, mo, the worst day in modern... The red line was election night, David. The red line to but me if was you election saw it night. coming, if you saw him calling the election, pre-butting the election and calling it fraudulent going in... I didn't think he'd actually do it when the moment came. I thought he was doing that. It's kind of like you, you've had candidates before who, like, before elections will say, I know I'm going to lose, I know I'm going to lose. It's a self-protective measure. And I know I did that in 09. My um, candidates generally kept it in the bubble box. <laughs> well, th that's one of the things that makes Donald Trump completely different. Um, yeah, I wasn't out there saying, I know I'm going to lose. I just used to say it to Mary Pat. Um, but I didn't think he would do it. To me, it was sitting there at 2.30 in the morning in the studios at ABC, see him come out for the speech in the East Room of the White House, standing behind the seal of the president and saying the election was stolen, and then offering not one piece of evidence to support that. And I was sitting there with George Stephanopoulos. The president was still talking. And I said to George, as soon as he stops, you come to me first. And he said, what are you going to say? I said, don't worry about it. Just come to me first. And he said, okay. And so he said, Chris Christie, you know President Trump better than anybody. What do you think? And I said, that's completely awful and unacceptable. And as a prosecutor, that's like me going to a grand jury and saying, return this indictment on Axelrod. Now, I'll present evidence to you later, but just take my word for it now, he's guilty. We would never think to do something like that. And that's not nearly as important as a national election for President of the United States. So I say in the book, I was sick to my stomach. I was. I, 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 I spoke to his son that night who called me after I said that to give me a hard time. And I said to him, like, you guys have some evidence. You better show it. And I said, by the way, if you have evidence that the election was stolen, that's convincing, I'll fight with you. But you got to show the evidence before you say it was stolen. Uh, and I had that conversation with the president four or five times between Election Day and Christmas. And, um, you know, he would try to bulldoze me like he bulldozed everybody else. And he couldn't. I just kept saying to him, where's the evidence? I'm a prosecutor. Where's the evidence? He'd say these things that weren't evidence. So that's the red line for me, David. Like, I, I don't, you can't undercut our democracy with no facts. And uh, that's why we haven't spoken since a couple of days before Christmas of last year. President Trump endorsed Representative Gosar today, one day after his House censure for, as you know, an animated illustration of him murdering AOC and attacking the president. Not, uh, not surprising. Yeah. It's, it's the, it's, look, he's engaged right now in vendetta politics. You know, when Adam Kinzinger said he wasn't going to run, you know, he said two down, eight to go. Um, you know, that's what he's into right now. And it is, it's not only bad for the party in the country, but what he doesn't yet realize is it's bad for him. It's bad for him. And uh, he shouldn't be doing it as his friend. Um, I would tell him he shouldn't be doing it because whatever legacy he has as president, Operation Warp Speed, the economic performance, 
the other things that the conservative judges, the things that we as Republicans would say were good things. Um, every time he does stuff like this, it diminishes that, in my view. Well, as your friend, I'm not sure that he's your friend anymore. So I, and it may not be. You help prepare him for debates. What are the odds that you'll be debating him in a couple of years? And how much would you uh, enjoy that? Well, I enjoy debating anybody. I know. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I do debating anybody. So if I run, um, if you're asking, will it be um, somehow better or more enjoyable if he's on the stage? I, I don't really care. Um, I really don't. If I decide to run for president, I quite frankly don't care who the hell else is up on the stage. It's going to be my job to make myself the most attractive, appealing candidate. Um, and that's what you do every time you go up there. But if he well, turns out to be there, this much I'll guarantee you. If he turns out to be there and I'm there, he'll know I'm there. I'm sure of that. Chris Christie, thanks so much for being here. Thanks, David. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Allison Siegel. The show is also produced by Miriam Finder Annenberg, Jeff Fox, and Hannah Grace McDonald. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Rafina Ahmad, Courtney Coop, Ashley Lusk, and Megan Marcus. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.